So generally speaking, we can observe that when there is dukkha of any kind, really, and um, some situation or something in our life, in any dimension of our life, uh, when there is dukkha, and we can allow ourselves uh, to find skillful ways of being intimate with, opening to, connecting to, contacting that dukkha and holding it and responding to it in in different skillful ways. And sometimes out of that uh, crucible, the heat of the dukkha, if you like, um, uh, an image uh, is born uh, and uh, or an image uh, of the dukkha or an image that is uh, in relationship to the dukkha. And that image might be born just uh, within ourselves, in our own solitary practice. It might be born through a field in which the imaginal spark uh, jumps, so to speak, from one person in the field to the other, or the image is communicated from someone else to ourselves. Um, And that opening of the imaginal perception or the arising of the imaginal in relationship to the dukkha and to the difficult situation um, the the sensing with soul there we could say is uh, a kind of uh, way of looking or rather sensing with soul embraces a whole uh, range uh, of ways of looking of perspectives, if you like, that will bring, in some way or other, some healing, some liberation, some relief and release from the dukkha. And that's just a general observation that I hope you've seen um, many times already, if you've been practicing, um, and you can trace it through many of the examples that I've given in talks, or Catherine has given, or perhaps other teachers too. So I want to point out a few things about all this. So, um, as we said, often there's uh, some situation that feels oppressive. Uh, that there, there's dukkha, and we see that very situation imaginally, or we find an image there. Um, of that very situation, or of ourselves in that situation, or of the other, perhaps the other with whom we are having a difficulty, or the other who is suffering. We, 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 we find a way to see them as image, or the seeing of them, or ourselves, or the situation as image, arises for us out of that crucible. And that seeing, that kind of way of looking, the sensing with soul, um, is uh, brings with it a lessening of the oppression, a lessening of the contraction, a greater degree of spaciousness and ease. It's not because we've gone away from or avoided the situation or the pain in it. It's not that at all. Um, but it's because we've allowed it to have or to give birth to or reveal um, or we've uh, created 
or discovered the imaginal uh, dimensions of it, other or, or more dimensions of that very dukkha, of that very situation, of ourselves, of an other. And in that, that creates more space. And there is, as we pointed out, an aspect of um, the imaginal constellation is inevitably the sense of what we call an imaginal way or the theatre. And that's there too. And that, in a way that's very, uh, uh, that parallels um, quite closely the uh, middle way of emptiness, um, that also releases some suffering out of the situation, some of the grip of the craving and the contraction in in relation to the suffering that causes, sorry, in relation to the difficulty that causes the suff- causes extra suffering. So there's, generally speaking, because of these factors, more space, um, uh, less concretization, and... Uh, or, or only a concrete, concretized, concretized view, only a flat view of what's going on, and, and all of that um, makes the whole thing feel less oppressive. And it's as if the image, or the imaginal figure, or the, the perspective of the imaginal perception, the perspective of sensing the soul, has a kind of wisdom in it, a soul wisdom, comes, is given to us, is transmitted to us through the imaginal, through the sensing the soul, um, regarding um, action, speech, bearing, poise, attitude, intention in that situation. In other words, something is communicated to us um, of a kind of practical wisdom or, or that has implications for how, how we might then be differently in that situation. Sometimes it's a matter of then consciously trying to implement it. Sometimes the very opening to the imaginal um, by itself affects that shift in our action, speech, bearing, courage, poise, uh, intention, what we're trying to do in the situation, or what we can uh, stand behind uh, and, and commit to doing. So... This uh, <coughs> way of soul-making, this way of sensing with soul, this way of imaginally perceiving, stands, as I said, alongside um, and together with, or in, our larger repertoire of um, tools, arts, as, as practitioners that we can have with, uh, in regard and in relationship to suffering. So it's not always... Here's some suffering. Oh, can I see it's impermanent? Can I see it's empty? Can I bring more meta? Can I just let go? Um, these are all very, very important, valid, indispensable uh, arts, if you like, skills that we develop in Dharma practice. But there's also the way of the imaginal. There's also the way of sensing with soul. Now, if if someone's um, <coughs> uh, very new to this and they hear uh, something about um, find the image here with with the suffering uh, in a suffering situation, you know that's probably very liable to be misunderstood um, without much previous experience of imaginal practice, etc. See it as image or find the image here. Um, 
may seem to be suggesting some kind of disconnection from the reality of the situation, some kind of going into a extreme of um, anti-realism um, or avoiding it with a sort of pleasant construct of uh, um, wishful thinking or daydreaming. But by this point, you've been listening and practicing, and you know we mean something um, much more uh, sophisticated and, and um, artful than that. Uh, that involves our and demands our integrity and our sensitivity and our presence and connection and openness and humility and all of that. But with all this and this possibility of sensing with soul as uh, one of the modes, one of the ways in which dukkha is is eased and relieved, um, we might also ask. Again, regarding this this question or this factor element of the imaginal of intention and what I call the fullness of intention in that list of elements of the imaginal aspects of the imaginal, and we might ask: Does the intention in in sort of endeavouring to see this difficulty or this difficult situation um, as um, image image or to find the image there? Does it? Um, have to be, my intention there have to be more than um, just for the sake of trying to find some ease. In other words, does my intention have to be um, for the love of soul making and the fullness of soul making? When, we pointed out before, that very fullness of intention is part of what makes it imaginal, uh, what qualifies it to have that um, adjective or um, label fully imaginal, authentically imaginal. But it's also, fullness of intention is also what opens up and delivers to us the authentically imaginal sensing of soul, soul making. Here we're asking, does does the fullness of intention, um, if or rather, let's put it over and if I'm only trying to find uh, a way to relieve my dukkha, and I say, oh, okay, Oh, let me try an image, maybe that will get rid of the dukkha. And that's the kind of extent of my intention. I'm only trying to relieve dukkha. Will that be enough to relieve the dukkha? Or does my intention have to be even bigger? It's not that I don't acknowledge and I'm not aware of that dukkha may well be relieved in in the uh, sensing with soul. But my intent, the fullness of intention, that it's for the love of soul-making, the whole of soul-making, and that that soul-making is more than just my personal psycho-spiritual process. It's for the sake of the divine, right? That's all in in the meaning of that, um, what we mean by fullness of intention, as we said in the first talk. And so the soul is more uh, than my, I'm conceiving of soul-making as more than my psycho-spiritual process. And I'm also conceiving as the locus or location, if you like, of soul as more than just here. In soul-making, it's not just um, my soul which is here that gets made into soul or uh, whose soul is increased and made more magnified. It's also, so to speak, the soul out there as other. Nature, the trees, what is perceived uh, and uh, discovered. 
in the object is also soul. So soul making means soul making everywhere. And in all the all the aspects of soul making, the eros, psyche, logos, all of that. So what we find is when there's a full a, that kind of fullness of intention, or to the degree that there's that fullness of intention, to that degree is the imaginal opened up, is the sensing with soul um, opened up and supported and galvanized and deepened and enriched. Uh, and the soul-making, and also, to that degree, is their release of dukkha. In other words, if the intention is only the, uh, for the release of dukkha, I'm just trying to kind of find an image so that I might have some relief from dukkha, um, and perhaps I'm approaching it in quite a contrived way, even. Um, try, try to see, let, let's put an image there, maybe that helps. Actually, there's two points there. One is about the, the, the limitations of the intention, or the range of the intention, the fullness of intention. The other is about how I go about it, whether it's contrived or I let it emerge. Um, of, of those two, the first is perhaps the most important, that maybe if my intention is only the sort of release of dukkha, it may be that less dukkha is released. The contrived thing is a little more uh, open as a question because sometimes we do deliberately. I'm he, here's this difficulty. I'm curious what this imaginal figure that has been so meaningful for me in the past. Um, I'm curious what happens when I bring this imaginal figure into dialogue, into relationship, into connection with this dukkha or with myself experiencing this dukkha. Now that might be contrived. Um, in the sense that it's not just emerging organically uh, by itself from, from our connection with the dukkha. So that may or may not be useful. And the dukkha that is, uh, or the, the, the release, the decrease of dukkha that is enabled through imaginal per- perception, through sensing with soul, um, is, is is very interesting in what it delivers in, 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 in how that that kind of dukkha is experienced as I as I've touched on already. There's something akin here to the um, the two arrows uh, uh, metaphor that the Buddha used, and the second arrow being the kind of um, secondary contraction or reaction to um, to a suffering. So it might be a physical suffering, and perhaps the mind is getting embroiled in that. And the body also has a kind of secondary level of contraction. The energy body contracts around pain, around emotional pain, around physical pain, etc. So this release of dukkha that comes through the sensing with soul, um, it it releases what we might call um, the kind of the, uh, the the cloud of second arrows or something like that. That um, but the the it might leave, of course, um, what is, if you like, inevitably difficult, inevitably unpleasant, inevitably painful, um, physically at some point, or or even tragic. And what it does with that in leaving it 
is it doesn't leave it in just a flat way. It leaves it in a way that is impregnated and shot through and rich with soul. So there is this definite sense of release of dukkha, the cloud of second arrows, and you can feel that in the clarifying, opening, harmonizing the energy body and the easing of the mind and the nervous system. And and the rest of the dukkha, the, so, the, the kind of unavoidable tragedy of what we might be facing, the unavoidable difficulty of what we might be facing, is rendered uh, with soul. And sometimes, in fact, very often what happens if this process goes deep is then it, that is perceived as perfect. There's something perfect about this very difficulty that I actually wouldn't wish on anyone. I certainly didn't wish it on myself. In a way, I'd rather it really not be here. And somehow, in the, in the sensing of the whole difficulty with soul, in the sensing with soul of the whole difficulty, there's one uh, great level of reducing of the suffering, and the remaining dukkha is regarded as perfect. Um, uh, and again, not in a contrived way. Not as a, a shallow uh, sort of posture, spiritual posture, or intellectual posture. Someone on a retreat in the last, um, well, since I've been ill, <coughs> um, I can't remember what exactly it was in response to, perhaps something that I'd written or perhaps something that I had shared in a talk. And I can't remember exactly, they wrote me a note on a retreat, and I can't remember exactly what the um, note said, but it said, how can, you, how can you talk of your cancer and your situation as perfect? And uh, I have a really hard time with this. And um, I think, I can't quite remember, and I think the note mentioned... Uh, terrorism or, or something like that. So it's a really, really good question and I don't think, if I remember in the retreat, I got the time, I think I said a little bit in it, um, I squeezed a little bit in in a QA and a um, reading from the note, but um, I didn't really have the time to amplify it, so I'd like to say just a little bit about that now. Because um, we can, uh, one can and people do uh, kind of adopt a, a sort of concept um, that everything is perfect, uh, and it's a sort of uh, kind of yes spiritualized attitude or something. Um, so everything is perfect, including the tragic, including um, all dukkha. But that posture or that kind of concept. Um, or idea, or is is sometimes we can hear it. It's just way too facile. It's lacking in integrity and in sensitivity. There's something disconnected in it. It's not really um, letting the heart and the soul be impacted, engage with, meet, be worked on by the dukkha, by the tragedy there. Something um, disconnected and unattuned, something indifferent sometimes to the point of a kind of callousness um, uh, in relation to one's own suffering or in relation to um, someone else's suffering or the suffering in the world. And actually, there, for all the kind of um, ultimate sounding 
spiritual sounding wisdom in that um, everything is perfect sort of idea, there is actually a, a lack of wisdom and intelligence as well as those other factors, sensitivity, connection, attunement, um, etc. Integrity. Um, so, but somehow, because of the prevalence of those kind of teachings, um, which in their when they come from the right place, they do have a wisdom for them. But sometimes they don't come from the right place. A person is just picking it up, and it's um, it's not wise. It's not sensitive. It's not intelligent. Other times, students pick up that, um, or hear a teaching that like, everything is empty, so everything's okay. Um, or and try and apply that, or just some great tragedy, for some great social tragedy or um, environmental tragedy, and are trying to apply the teachings of emptiness or the perspectives of emptiness to this tragedy. But they might not be, that student might not be in their understanding, in their visceral understanding in their practiced, worked, integrated, digested understanding of emptiness. Um, that level of depth and comprehensive emptiness might not be yet digested to them and available to them, might not be natural to them at that level that would be commensurate with a kind of um, seeing it as perfect, but not seeing it as and by seeing it as perfect, I don't mean seeing it as perfect in a way that we just don't don't give a damn, basically. Just go and watch, watch TV, watch a film, disconnect. So, um, many times I've stressed emptiness is a tool. It's a very, very powerful tool, or rather to the degree that we realize emptiness. Um, it's, it's a tool of that degree of power. And in a way, it, 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 well, it is. It's a very powerful tool. But like all tools, a tool, is, is, a tool has a certain range. Um, so we apply it where it works for us, where it's appropriate. Trying to apply emptiness when we haven't, um, we can't really even pick up that tool at that level. Or where it's just for some other reason not the appropriate tool. This isn't, this isn't wise practice. It's not skillful practice. This sense of the perfection or the rightness, the, the, the mysterious perfection and rightness, even of um, some dukkha or some tragedy, um, is available as genuine as a genuine and profound sense um, that is soul-making and fruitful when that tragic situation or event or thing or that dukkha is seen as image, as is when the imaginal perception is there, when the sensing the soul is there, it emerges um, this mysterious, almost almost ineffable, almost unarticu unarticulatable sense of the perfection and rightness and even the grace of even what is most difficult and most tragic and dukkha um, emerges when, when, the, uh, when we see it as image, when we sense it with soul, this difficulty, this situation. So for example, the, um, 
the can the cancer that I have and the, and the prognosis I was given and and the real uh, possibility of facing uh, a, a, an early death and uh, a death not not very far away uh, finding ways or there emerging ways that that become became image was was sensed um, with soul, and then that transforms really the whole uh, transfigures the whole sense of the whole situation. This sensing it as image or sensing it with soul is is a sensibility. Uh, it involves receptivity, it involves tuning, it involves humility. It's not a technique, as we pointed out before. Or it's not certainly not only a technique, and in those kind of situations, situations it's probably even less in the realm of mastery or technique. There's there's even grace involved in that receptivity to what soul uh, is giving us, if you like, through the very dukkha. So sometimes a situation, an event, um, a feeling, some kind of dukkha, some kind of uh, tragedy even, whatever it is, something uh, like, if I use the example of, of my, my cancer, um, it needs to become image first. It needs to become imaginal image first. Uh, we're there with it, and and in our connection with it, in our openness and sensing in to the whole situation, it becomes image. We sense it with soul first, and then this is perfect. This is somehow perfect in ways I can't. I can't even. I can't even get my head around. I don't fully understand. The whole thing becomes image. Um, but I, I'm not approaching it first with this um, kind of idea of the perfection of all things and the perfection even of dukkha. So if if I do try to approach it with um, uh, you know, big, deep difficulties and and dukkhas with with this kind of attitude of this is perfect as as a kind of spiritual idea um, that's kind of not commensurate with with what's going on and I'm not really attuned and it can be really silly, a really a kind of platitude and and actually offensive. And so, you know, it, it might be someone is is um, uh, taken with with certain kind of non-dual teachings, and, and and might hear this kind of thing. Everything's perfect like that, or or a different a diff- different kind of truth. Everything is God's will, but it all depends on the integrity, the sensitivity, the openness, the humility, the work, the receptivity, the attunement of the relationship uh, in which of the you know, of the crucible in which the sensing the soul, in which the imaginal perception emerges. So again, all this is is to put <coughs> the imaginal and the sensing the soul kind of to add it to as one option, uh, either um, uh, in addition to or mixed with, alongside, um, other options we have as Dharma practitioners when faced with suffering, when faced with Dukkha.
and in in that regard, there's something more. I've, I've sort of touched on it. Well, I've touched on it many times, but I've, I've touched on it a little bit in 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 this talk. So, one may believe. I've, I've stressed the importance of, of um, contacting, connecting with the difficulty, opening to it, and then the image emerging from that, and then the sensing of soul emerging with that. And we can hear that, and and kind of um, there can be. In our hearing or understanding of that, there can be, um, what what could we call it, like um, a belief lodged in there that um, there's something real in there of of the suffering that we can kind of objectively contact, that we can see just as it is. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. And then when we connect with it just as it is, um, then then out of that an image can come. Um, so that's fine, and that's sometimes the best way of um, of working uh, to approach the, the dukkha, and and so that the soul may can come out of it can come out of it, but. You know, I've said this so many times. Co- the contact with dukkha or with anything um, is never uh, direct, bare, simple, unmediated truth or fact revealing. Um, there's always a way of looking, and and wrapped up in the way of looking, there's always ideas, concepts, and conceptual frameworks with any contact or any connection with anything. Anytime there's any perception <coughs> wrapped up in that is um, uh, that involves some kind of way of looking and wrapped up in that is all kinds of concepts and ideas and conceptual frameworks. So the dukkha that we connect with when in our practice we're trying to first connect with dukkha, um, <coughs> the, the way we might sense it or perceive it or contact it or whatever, is not actually the bare actuality. The fundam is not the fundamental thing, the real thing, um, and nor even is um, the story we give to ourselves of its origin, of its cause. And that's something I'll come back to. Sometimes, and I hope in all this talking, you can get the sense of an alternative. Um, possibility, uh, either of of actually sensing or conceiving, that the image is primary. That the way we sense with soul is primary, is first. I don't mean that temporally first, as as first in a temporal sense. First this, then a nanosecond later, some interpretation or or something like that. I mean in the sense of... uh, Conceptual frameworks often place something as more fundamental, as more the the primary driving force of the psyche, let's say. And you can get a sense, uh, sometimes I hope, or at least uh, in, in your experience or in your conceiving about experience, that there's a possibility of actually that the, of con- conceiving and sensing feeling that the image is primary. The imaginal is primary, is, so to speak, first. 
And it may be that uh, one also gets the sense, or the sort of sense in hindsight, or entertains the concept that, um, as I mentioned earlier just briefly, that yes, the image is primary somehow, and out of that, situations arise with that as the sort of seed or kernel. Um, and out of that, our life situations arise, mirroring the image, or some kind of dukkha arises, um, uh, which we quickly get into a kind of unhelpful and non-soul-making relationship with. So that then we're just left with the dukkha, and the image might have become papancha, the eros that might be there might have become craving, and everything's gotten flattened. Maybe sometimes even a step further, we can sometimes even come to be able to regard at times, or move in and out of the 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 uh, conceptual framework that might even regard our very process of learning as somehow given to us by soul or in the process of soul making, so that this image. And then everything we went through with that, it's given to us as um, as part of the soul-making, as, as for the sake of and as part of the soul-making. So our, our history, even the painful aspects of our history, and our learning and our development psychologically, uh, in, in, in soul and... and uh, in relationship, all of that um, is somehow part of the soul-making process and given to us um, as potential by soul, a seed by soul. And I certainly don't mean to foist these ideas on anyone as some kind of dogma. Um, and, and, And one shouldn't really enforce it on oneself or on another, ever. It's more just, these are possible ways of looking, ways of framing, ways of conceiving. We can entertain, as I said, move in and out of entertaining certain concepts, certain conceptual frameworks, if they prove helpful, if they prove soul-making, or when they prove soul-making. Rather than a fixed dogma, this is how things are, this is the truth of things. This is how one should always uh, respond. This is how one should always think and regard. This is the truth. <clears throat> so this um, seeing or sensing my dukkha or what is given to me um, and what difficulties are given to me and challenges are given to me. This seeing and sensing of all that as perfect in this kind of mysterious way uh, and, and, and that itself is, is kind of unfathomable. That's what I mean by I couldn't quite get my head around it or articulate it. This seeing and sensing of it as perfect um, which implies that it has become image first. Um, uh, seeing it as a gift from the soul as a gift from um, some god, or however we want to put this. This doesn't imply just 
a passivity of receiving. Ah, it's perfect, it's all gift, so I just kind of, um, all I have to do is receive something. Um, again, there's a kind of, to me, a little more sophistication in how, how the conceptual framework is working. So as I pointed out, I, I can't remember when in this series of talks, but we can regard it as given. The soul gives us these things, if you like. That's a certain um, conceptual framework, a certain way of conceiving, a certain uh, sensibility also. And at the same time, um, in order for it to be soul-making, uh, it's not enough that I am given something. I need to assent to what I am given and assent to um, endeavouring and working to to make soul there, to see it in a way that makes soul, to relate to it in a way that makes soul. So yes, we can say that something is given, these things are given to me. Soul gives us the beautiful and the difficult. Um, and at the same time, the soul-making needs my assent. The soul gives us uh, what it wants for our soul-making, and at the same time, it needs my assent, my will, my soul-making orientation, my soul-making intention, my soul-making tuning, my participation is required. So as I pointed out, in the tunus of eros, the tunus that's part of soul-making perception, imaginal perception, sensing the soul, not just the autonomy of the other, but also my autonomy is necessary, is preserved in that tunus, and also has its due uh, emphasis in, 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 that, in the tunus that is part of the imaginal constellation. My autonomy is necessary because I need, or the soul-making needs, my autonomy. I need to um, harness my will, uh, orient in a certain way, adopt a certain attitude, work towards the soul-making. And there's the grace of what is given to me. And somehow, again, that um, curious uh, polarity is embraced the mixture of opposites or paradox or whatever there. So, my choosing, my will, as well as my listening, my deliberation, which which may well include doubt and uncertainty with regard to what is happening and what the right approach is, all that is necessary as a part of soul-making. And perhaps without them, without my choosing, without my will, without my listening, without also my deliberation, my doubt and my uncertainty, um, um, soul-making is not possible, or, 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 or it's limited. The extent and depth and range of it is limited, perhaps. And maybe, maybe, that's exactly because of the stretching that's part of the soul-making dynamic. Remember the eros, psyche, logos getting stretched as part of their mutual fertilization and expansion. So if we don't feel stretched, and sometimes that stretch is... Uh, if we don't feel stretched, then soul-making is not happening. And sometimes being stretched is difficult. It feels difficult. And there's doubt and uncertainty, etc., and work involved.
So, connecting with Dukkha, uh, through that connection and the kind of poise of that connection, the sensitivity and receptivity and attitude and intention there, and the listening and the attuning, something in or around or in relation to the Dukkha, or from the Dukkha, emerges as image. The uh, gates to the Mundus Imaginalis are opened. Uh, we sense uh, what is happening, ourselves included, the Dukkha included with soul, and out of that can come, as part of that, then soul-making unfolding, a sense of perfection. The, the uh, almost mystical, unfathomable, uh, baffling, almost, perfection of of the very dukkha itself, of the tragic. So, um, some of you will know recently I, um, I uh, received a diagnosis of very extreme osteoporosis. Um, really extreme. Apparently I had uh, no idea until I started breaking bones without... Uh, without any impact, or very, very little impact, or just uh, nothing at all. Bones started breaking. I had a scan, and she said, um, you know, it's really, really severe here. And uh, I had no idea, so that was quite a shock. And I, I get to find out what it means long term. It sounded like uh, they can't really make it much better, so what does that imply if I survive the cancer, etc.? So it was somewhat of a shock, and, and there's a lot of unknown in terms of what will actually happen, what will be possible for my life and my range of activities and all, all kinds of things. And there's a sense with that, obviously, of vulnerability in the body, that one um, might very easily break bones with the, with the, the slightest of um, impacts, um, break one's back, or, or uh, etc., um, or even, as I said, without even an impact, uh, just moving in a certain way, um, not even particularly uh, fast or, or uh, hard or strange movements. Um, so there's a sense there of vulnerability with that. There's the vulnerability of not knowing, there's the f- sense of physical vulnerability on top of the cancer and the chemotherapy, etc. And so found myself with that and was just sitting with that and sitting with the scent, the whole sense of the whole thing, the unknown, the physical, uh, the, the, the sense of the frailty of, of, of my body and the sense of not knowing what the future would be. And all of that and the, emo- the um, emotions opening to the whole of it, connecting with the whole of it, with the whole of the energy body and the vulnerability being... Um, uh, a difficult emotion, but that lends itself um, or has a door uh, that opens into the possibility of humility. And humility, we said, was one of the aspects of the imaginal, didn't we? Um, so, right there with the whole energy body, and then the humility um, easily accessible in, in the humility of the not knowing, the humility that came via the vulnerability and the frailty, the sense of frailty of the body, both as an idea and as a sort of physical um, sense. And then uh, opening to or, or, or finding within that the sense of um, eternality as another aspect of the imagine. I didn't kind of... Um, approach this in a contrived way, so this was just organic, this is more in retrospect, I'm reporting 
uh, and articulating what stages enabled something to open up here, and these are the elements involved. Um, as it happened, it wasn't um, it wasn't contrived or uh, um, planned. Uh, you know what I would do, but there was a sense with the whole energy body, with that connection with the dukkha, with the humility that opened and and uh, was kind of a, a lovely kind of softening there. Then the sense of eternality. And I think I touched on earlier just very briefly, the, the many kinds of eternality as, as an aspect of the sensing with soul. In this case, it was a sense of um, the whole life, my whole life, um, with its narrative, and its difficulties, and, and particularly in, in this case, the, the physical difficulties and the sort of, um, <laughs> what well, might be a kind of lit- litany of physical difficulties or, or kind of narrative of kind of illnesses and physical challenges, etc. So the story, including the conditions of body, of soul, of relationship, with, with humans, with uh, ideas, with friends, with uh, quote, foes, with um, societies, with cultures, all that um, is uh, w- was kind of sensed, or I moved into a mode where that was sensed or seen, um, so to speak, from after death, as if um, the whole life, that whole narrative, and everything involved in it, and all the dukkha involved in it, and these particular dukkhas, and that whole stream was sort of seen from a perspective out of time, from after death, like the whole thing was just uh, was just sort of there. Um, as, as I mentioned when I when I touched briefly on this before, the whole theme, the whole um, narrative and story, and all the conditions and all the difficulties were seen um, subspecie. Eternatis, in Latin, from the um, perspective, if you like, of eternity. And that combination of the whole energy, the, 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 the openness to the dukkha, the connecting, not, not hiding from it, not running away, not, but connecting um, uh, in, in, in you know, good, healthy uh, ways with, with the situation, with my feelings, um, with, with the fact of it, with the whole energy body awareness, with the humility opened via the vulnerability, and with this particular kind, in this case, of sense of eternality, then the the, the whole imaginal sense of, of of the whole situation opened up. Again, the, we could say the doors, the gates of the mundus imaginaris, the realm of the imaginal, open up. But it's not something other than, not something other than cancer and possible early death, or um, a possibly longer period of time with a very frail and incapable um, body and severely restricted activities. It's not something other. Um, it's this body, this dukkha, this moment, this life, this death, this story. All of that sensed with soul. Yeah? Again, it's not... It's not um, It's not necessarily that there's going to be because of that, because that perception then feels so healing, so beautiful, so tender in the presence of the divine, so blessed in and with all the difficulties, all the vulnerability, all the unknown, all the frailty. Um, 
Uh, it's not necessarily because of that level of healing that then the situation is not is is without difficulty or without um, from a certain perspective a certain tragic element or that my bones then kind of miraculously go back to normal. I mean, maybe something like that happens. I don't know, but um, but. Uh, that's kind of not the level that felt even even the most important at that point. There was such um, blessing, reverence, tenderness, grace, uh, mystery of dimensionality and divinity. of the dukkha through r- relating to um, all of it and um, uh, the, the, the opening up uh, of the soul making there and to draw one element out of uh, what I just shared um When we uh, can sense uh, this or that dukkha, or our life, or ourselves with soul, um, sometimes when when that um, deepens or, or unfolds to a certain extent, we can perceive all of it as gift, um, all of it as grace. So that even this difficulty, even this um, uh, cancer, even this possible early death, even this possible, I don't know what a life with severe osteoporosis looks like, um, extreme osteoporosis, I don't know, um, in that restriction and whatever it is, and that, that vulnerability, all of that is, is felt as gift. And the gift of life and the gift of my life with its particulars. Again, I'm really not wanting to foist this on anyone as dogma. You should see things this way. This is how it is. Talking about ways of looking, talking about possibilities, and that there's always a sense of um, both sensing, you know, discerning what is appropriate to us right now and our situation. What what helps? Is it soul making? Does it heal and liberate and relieve dukkha? And in what ways? Or what might be given to me, like my antennae are 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 um, alert for what soul might be prompting me, or or, or handing me as as clues for where the soul making is. But one possibility, possible if we call it a way of looking, um, is that in the soul making, in the sensing the soul of all of that dukkha, life, self, etc., um, w- with soul there is. Um, a sense of all of it as gift, all of it as gift. Um, <clears throat> now, when we when we talk about um, the gift of life, or sensing life as a gift, um, that kind of idea, if you like, um, uh, has many possible different. We can understand it, we can have a sense of it, or it might mean something at many different levels. So, for example, um, 
a more conventional way of uh, seeing it for even for someone who's kind of um, let's say religiously uh, has a kind of religious orientation or attitude um, sensing myself um, uh, as something separate from the divine um, and um, sensing time more conventionally, sensing life and death more conventionally, and there is something or somewhere or some level um, that we might call divine, and uh, we receive this gift of life from from that divine, the miracle of it, the beauty of it, the, uh, the the dukkha in it that we can't quite fathom. Um, but the sense of the gift of life at, at, well, then is it, very beautiful still but because of the more conventional view of time, of life and death and the more um, perhaps uh, normal view of oneself being something separate from God um, the, the beauty there and the sense of gift is, is only at a certain level there's a whole other level possible um, in in the sense of, of grace and gift when we begin to sense that this self and my soul is not separate somehow from the divine, from the Buddha nature, whatever we want to call it. We participate in in God and God participates in us. Not separate in the most profound way. And when life and death, my life and my death, become imaginal image for us, when they are seen and sensed with soul, seen and sensed as imaged, which doesn't mean there is no death or I'm going to live forever in some kind of afterlife or um, uh, there's a heaven or, or whatever it is or I'll be reborn or or whatever, it doesn't mean necessarily believing any of that. It's more life and death, as they appear to us, become image, become imaginal. There's a whole other level here of sense of the gift of life, when the self and the soul and the divine, are, or the Buddha nature, are not seen as separate. They're interpenetrating and interparticipating. Participating. Life and death become image, they are perceived imaginally, and time is uh, recognized as empty, thoroughly, deeply empty. Then there's a whole other level of gift that opens up. And part of that gift is exactly the, the sense of the, the depths and the mystery of participation, of our participation, my participation, your participation in existence and in the divine. Uh, and also our participation in sacralizing existence and the cosmos. So this is part of the um, uh, the work of the soul, I would say, and and what to me, as I shared, is so important, or the most perhaps the most important thing in soul making is the sacralizing, the making sacred, the rendering sacred, the the perceiving as sacred and then relating to as sacred of the whole of existence and the whole of, of the cosmos. And that in um, in an in 
infinitely expanding uh, uh, possibility of ways. And it's that sense of the depth of depth of participation and the mystery of that 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 is so much a part or that comes with um, a whole other dimension, if you like, of the sense of gift, of the soul making perception of gift of life. shared, I, I think perhaps um, on my uh, website, I can't remember, but um, I shared a practice again that, that sort of arose organically one night. It wasn't too long after I'd, um, uh, after the operation, after they'd sort of analyzed the, the, the cancer tissue that they took out and uh, and give, gave me a prognosis which was not very good at all um, with uh, uh, stage 4 cancer and all that business and I remember not being able at point my tummy was very uh, still very un, very very unsettled and so it was difficult to sleep at night and, um, and one night um, giving up on trying to sleep and sitting up in bed and, and practicing in the dark and I'd just been given this uh, prognosis and the, and the news about uh, what stage the cancer was at and all that. And I practiced um, in different ways with the emptiness. I'm really seeing everything as empty. Um, self, world, time, everything. And that um, kind of rendered things uh, liquid, malleable, as we said. And, and in that liquidity... Um, it was possible to sense the moment and sense um, uh, also then more than the moment the, the whole larger situation of my illness and the prognosis that I'd been given and everything. Uh, it was possible to sense that with soul. So here's an example of the emptiness practice um, being opening uh, the uh, or taking us to the, to the threshold of imaginal potential at least. And there was a sense through that of um, uh, sensing, it's like my soul was sensed with soul. It became, my soul um, became image for me in, in an imaginal way, as I just described. Um, and then with, with that, there's, there was a sense of, the sense of my soul then was that the soul was somehow not separate from my life and my experiences, and my death. And it was also not separate from my time span, or whatever time span it is given, uh, given to me for this life, whether that's uh, 52 years, or back then it was 50 years, or whatever, or, um, or longer, or a long life, or a relatively short life, or whatever. This duration of my life, my temporal duration between life and death, what happens in it, my experience of it, and my death, my life and my death, and my time, if you like, my time span, all of that, from this perspective of sensing my soul with soul, that was my soul. It wasn't other than my soul. 
You understand? So instead of the soul being something in here, or as I said, an organ uh, that perceives in a certain way, or something ethereal, like some kind of energy body that goes away and when I die, or something like that, um, all of which are, are good conceptions. We said at some point when we're talking about conceptions that we, we want to uh, have the concept of soul be kind of, to a certain extent, um, not finally defined, so that it can sometimes be expanded. The very concept and sense of what soul is needs not to be limited, because if the very sense and concept of soul becomes itself caught up as an object in the soul-making dynamic, the meaning of it, the sense of it, the concept of it for us will expand. So can't tie down too tightly the definition of what soul is. And in this kind of experience that opened up in the middle of the night, sitting up in bed, meditating, um, my soul is not something other than what I experience is not something other than my life, its experiences, and my death, is not something other than the temporal duration that is given to me between birth and death. And all of that is my soul, and all of it is theophany, because that's what the soul is. And none of it is separate from the divine, because that's also what soul is when it's sensed with soul. Whose soul? God's soul. My soul and God's soul. Buddha nature's soul. So not separate from the divine, not 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 just both both universally in, in those kind of ways um, that we talk about with emptiness practices and non fabricating practices, but also um, this is not separate this life that I have and this temporal duration and this, these experiences that I undergo and my stories and my narratives and my death is not separate from the divinity is the divine in some sense or participates in the divine in and through all the particulars of my personhood of your personhood my choices, your choices yes so there's that divinity of the universal there's the divinity of the, the personal and the particular and we dwelt a lot on that in, in some of the last retreats. As we said, the imaginal perception, the sensing the soul preserves particulars and persons um, as soul and as uh, rooted in the divine. And actually will create and discover more and more facets of uh, persons and particulars and more and more particulars of, of persons and of, of beloved uh, objects. So being then that my soul and my uh, whatever duration is given to me between birth and death is uh, theophany, is, that is my soul and that is theophany and that's not separate from the divine and that participates in, in the divine. With all of that, it, it's, there's a kind of perfection implicit there. Even if that time duration is short, even if there's uh, all this difficulty there, perfection is implicit in a in a in a sense of divinity. But perfection and and this or that being perfect is may not look like what we typically think perfection looks like. 
And, and of course, with all that, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. So we said earlier that um, there's something we could say that is given to us, but it still needs uh, my ascent, my will, my soul-making orientation, tuning and intention, my participation. So this is a different approach to dukkha than just regarding things as impermanent. My life is impermanent, health is impermanent, um, whatever, valid as excuse me, as valid as that can be at times as a way of looking at dukkha, as a way of um, bringing some relief from dukkha. Nor is it only or, or, or uh, saying it's just empty and adopting is different from that viewpoint as well. And nor is it saying it's just dukkha. What do you expect? Life, life is dukkha or life involves dukkha, however you want to interpret the first noble truth. Um... Uh, and this, this is our existential situation, and kind of, you know, deal with it. Face it. There's going to be tragedy. Um, again, valid as that can be at times for for some people. Um, uh, and nor is this approach saying just accept. So because of this sense of perfection, um, I'm talking about a gift or grace. It doesn't mean just accept. I mean, personally, I, I uh, um, deliberately seek out all kinds of treatment. I'm willing to put up with a lot of um, uh, unpleasantness that treatments cause as well. So it's not just accept. Uh, that's not, and again, sometimes that's a perfectly appropriate and perfectly skillful response to some kinds of dukkha. <clears throat> so this whole... Um, mode of practice is not is not just uh, uh, a matter of just accepting nor is it a, um, a prioritizing of the um, attitude of accepting some kind of finality acceptance has to be there at the beginning in terms of connecting with one's dukkha and opening to it and feeling it if I'm in denial about it, or if I just refuse it, or if I'm fighting it, then I can't even connect with it enough for that um, crucible to be formed or, or heated up uh, for the alchemy to happen. But it's certainly not, um, I think what, what I'm trying to point out now is I'm certainly not trying to um, po- point to a, a path of, um, oh, just accept, and that's, that's the final uh, delivery of a soul-making practice or sensing the soul of some dukkha is it just enables us to accept things um, at a deeper level always that's what it that's what it gives us that's where it goes so I think it was um, I think it was on the poetry of perception retreat the re-enchanting the cosmos um, and someone asked in a Q&A, if I remember, about the perception of sacredness um, in, you know, plastic things, or in the unpleasant also. Um, and I uh, can't quite remember what I said there. Um, and another person wrote me a note, again, which I only had time to write a note back uh, 
to, but I thought the question was very important. Uh, someone saying that they care very deeply about the earth, about the environment, and about society, and struggled uh, living in a city and moving around all day and seeing so many cars and so many uh, cars driven by just one person, etc., and so much pollution and smelling the pollution and knowing even when, when, when she can't smell it that the cars are releasing carbon dioxide and other pollutants. And the question was uh, something like, well, I've tried to practice, imagining with that, I tried to saw, see the cars as kind of big, cute animals or some, something like that. And um, there was really an earnest question, saying, well, that didn't really work. Um, and there's a real earnest questioning in there. Um, so th- this, again, in relation to all, this whole question about um, uh, acceptance and does... Soul, do soul-making practices, do imaginal practices issue in a kind of um, uh, depth of acceptance? Is that where it's always going? I mean, the short answer is no. Um, but sometimes what can happen is, um, if, we, if we talk about the unpleasant right now, which may be the physically unpleasant, the physically painful, actual painful situations or, or something else that's unpleasant, um, yeah, even the sight of plastic... Um, um, or whatever. Sometimes, um, with enough practice of emptiness, and it may be emptiness of um, a sensation of unpleasantness in se- itself, or uh, some kind of um, perception in any of the sense doors, sometimes with enough um, uh, realization or sense, practical sense, felt sense, perception of the emptiness of whatever is unpleasant, in the moment, in practice, um, that uh, can automatically, sometimes, um, if it goes really, really deep, um, there's a kind of sacredness that we perceive there. Or, what can happen is that, again, the um, either the unpleasantness itself is actually malleable, in other words, what, what is unpleasant can be... Um, transformed when we understand its emptiness enough can be oftentimes not always oftentimes transformed in into the pleasant so this pain in my back this pain in my knee whatever it is with uh, with skill in emptiness practice and also with um, jhana practice understood the right way we understand jhanas are training in perception because perceptions are empty they're actually malleable <coughs> including the perception of vedana pleasant unpleasant neutral I'm pretty sure I've talked, I've certainly written about this um, elsewhere, but I I think I've talked about it somewhere or other. Um, but they're also malleable in the sense I, I described earlier in this talk, that uh, there's a kind of liquidity c- comes in, and so uh, the sensing the soul is possible because uh, things have been made liquid, to borrow the alchemical metaphor. And in that, even the unpleasant, even if it stays unpleasant, can be... Um, sensed as sacred. And with that, accepted. Or, or, or it becomes easier to accept them, uh, whatever the unpleasant is there. But there's also, I, f- I feel, really uh, a necessary place, important to point out, a place that there's also the, the requirement um, that we... Uh, 
um, see or ask at least what these things, um, if we're talking about pollution, too many cars, um, too much plastic, whatever it is, what see and ask what these things are asking of us. What are we called to in action, in voice, or, or whatever? So, and, and that, uh, what are we called to, to redeem them? So again, I've shared uh, in, in the past this Kabbalistic uh, notion of tikkun olam, the healing of the world, or the restoration of the world. And sometimes the level of healing is, um, is just is the healing of the perception of the world. And so, again, in relation to my illness, like birds uh, weaving um, their bird song, weaving uh, a healing in my energy body, magically changing um, and transforming the, the flow of energy in the energy body, stitching uh, my body uh, with their w- with their melodies, and um, uh, not knowing, of course, does that have any. Uh, physically measurable effect on my illness. Um, but the healing there is a healing of perception, of self, of body, of world, of birdsong, of, of existence, of cosmos. So there may be a tikkun olam, a healing of the world on that level of the healing of our perception of the world, out of these uh, the flat land uh, of... of uh, Sent, being sensed without soul and, and uh, uh, its dimensionality opened up, its beauty, its mystery and all that in the ways that we're talking about in all these uh, all these teachings. But it may also be that um, these things, these ugly things, these um, uh, harmful things uh, or these unpleasant things, difficult things, also ask us, um, uh, or we are being asked to, to change them to work towards changing them, to, to work towards changing the world, um, uh, transforming society in some in some way or other. And that might mean, again, implicit in that is not just an acceptance. It might mean some kind of sacrifice in our life, some kind of hard work for the sake of beauty, for the sake of justice, for the sake of goodness. It might mean in that that we have to let go of a certain amount of comfort, a certain amount of convenience, a certain amount of pleasure that we have access to in our lives, a certain amount of security. That may be, uh, again, part of what is being asked of us, part of what uh, we might say uh, is, is a calling for us. So that in, in all that, in, in what is being asked of us, we might be stretched. Spiritually, or, 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 or the soul might be stretched. <clears throat> and then, again, if that's seen um, also with soul, then our very stretching, our very being stretched, can be seen as part of, um, as I said, the, 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 the soul-making of God. God's soul-making process, uh, the the divine or a divinity soul-making process, or the Buddha nature's soul-making. So we always talk about um, sense of the, the perfection of everything and uh, every, you know uh, the gift of things and grace, etc. It's not 
simply that all and, and, and sensing the soul and how that um, opens that those kinds of uh, sensibilities and perceptions um, it's not simply we're talking about um, moving towards um, a kind of blanket view of all is perfect all is divine just as it is so there's different possibilities here um, sometimes that's what happens other times we're actually asked for an engagement that um, that comes at cost and risk in our lives, in our material lives in our relationships, in our status sometimes what happens in relation to um, to a dukkha, what is unpleasant um is uh, there is a, a healing image constellates in relation to that difficulty. So an example would be that um, that bird song. And again, the birds were, uh, anyone would have heard the birds singing outside. Um, but the sensing them with soul, they became image, in this case healing image, in relationship to, to this uh, uh, dukkha unpleasantness difficulty. Um, and that, that could happen anyway, Avalokiteshvara coming, or Jesus coming, uh, whatever, or you uh, even bringing Jesus there, or whatever whatever the healing image is, in relationship to the difficulty. And, and because, again, of the imaginal, and, and the way the imaginal fire, if you like, catches, then... Uh, if it's Jesus or Avalokiteshvara, they're already a kind of divinity. There's already the sacredness there, and that sacredness begins to to spread to the difficulty, so that, that in in the pervasion and the expansion of the soul-making, that uh, too is perceived as sacred. And, and sometimes what needs to happen is an image arises that's not so much an obvious healing image, but more be, maybe more something like a kind of warrior image uh, that I talked about, whether it's solitary or or it's a whole being part of a, a whole uh, uh, army or clan or group of warriors or whatever it is. So perhaps um, for that person who wrote me the note regarding the the um, cars and the pollution and her and her soul pain around that, rather than trying to see the um, cars as uh, uh, enchanted, beautiful I- images and kind of um, take away the dukkha by seeing them as kind of cute, big cute animals sort of slouching along the street. Um, it might be that the self-image is actually um, uh, more appropriately uh, transformed, expanded, deepened into, perhaps maybe some kind of warrior image. In other words, this, and and then and then the question is, how does that um, translate into life? What's the duty to that image? What's the echoing of the life? Um, uh, the echoing in the life of that image. What's the mirroring? So, that maybe self, maybe other world, the eros itself, they, they can become um, imaginally infused um, in, in the constellation around the dukkha.
So then what we have is, is um, if if um, if that does move over into our life in terms of actually doing something, actually responding, whichever way that is, whether it might be a more um, strong standing up or civil disobedience or uh, a more uh, creating other kinds of structures or healing, um, a healing response, whatever different different kind of tonality. Um, action, voice, commitment, and image may all be involved and they're all related. So, in uh, or as partial response to this question, what is this? Um, what is this dukkha? What is this? difficulty, what is this ugliness, what is this unpleasantness calling me to? And sometimes we can ask that question, as I said before, um, a healing image in relationship to it might be a partial response to that. A warrior kind of image in relation to it may be a partial response. Another way of saying what we're just saying is um, soul-making in general and soul-making with respect or in, in relationship to some dukkha um, extends far beyond just intrapsychic images. Sometimes it's just an intrapsychic image in relation to some dukkha that comes up and all it needs is some kind of reverence uh, and recognition of the holiness of that image and that does there's almost no visible or sensible echo in, in, in the life that, that anyone else might discern at all sometimes that's the case um, but oftentimes uh, soul making and the soul making response or the soul's response to Dukkha um, goes way beyond just the intrapsychic uh, the confines of the intrapsychic. So this is not simple then, uh, necessarily. Uh, and it's not that we can approach it, as I said, in a contrived way, with some kind of formula, formulaic approach. Uh, we need discernment, and that needs a careful kind of listening, a careful kind of uh, attunement, responsiveness, sensitivity. Uh, it involves both our receptivity and our uh, activity, our proactiveness. And really, all that uh, discernment, listening, responsiveness, action, uh, receptivity, all that is in the service of kind of an inquiry. Is it possible that um, there can be uh, discovered or created or created slash discovered here an, an image an imaginal image that is soul making can this be sensed with soul to whatever the dukkha is I shared you know the, uh, the, 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 that situation of a person um, <coughs> who uh, felt the dukkha of what she regarded as a lot of papancha in relation to uh, stirred up by seeing 
this particular artwork and then having this column to write and the social situation she was in um, and uh, she regarded uh, it as papancha and a kind of manic energy but it may be that there's again something there that can be discovered kind of buried in all that that's actually potentially imaginal and connecting with that practicing with it in all the ways that we've talked about and the sensitivity and the receptivity the energy body etc etc tuning to it allows that imaginal to, to blossom really and then changes the whole relationship with that with those set of circumstances in, in the life or, or changes also the inner movement the inner relationship um, that, that was perceived as suffering As we said, that uh, discovery or creation of an image that is soul-making in relation to or in uh, the, the dukkha um, may not be uh, may not be what a certain, if we might say, ego level of, of us wants may not be uh, the outcome that would be most obviously what what everyone might deem uh, freedom from Dukkha. some distinctions um, obviously uh, between an image uh, for example of a situation that we um, we believe this is how things really are and and we call that um, a, a fixation or a papancha image or something like that or a fixated image um, so here's this dukkha, or here's this situation, or social situation, or ourselves, and we're, we're, we're just lost in an image that we're taking as real, as true, as, as this is how things are. So there's that kind of thing that every human being knows. Um, and then as Dharma practitioners, we also know um, the uh, possibility um, of an image or a story or a fantasy um, whose presence in the consciousness and whose believability we are mindful of. In other words, I realize now that there is this fantasy going on, there's this image going on. Um, And that mindfulness of the image allows less identification with it. We are less lost in it, um, less believing it to be true. I, re- I, see, I see what's going on. My mind has got this, this interpretation through this image, and, um, and, and it, I can really feel a tendency to believe that's true. But with enough mindfulness, we kind of just see that, and we're not so sucked into it. Um, uh, there's some distance to doubt its complete veracity. So we could call that mindful observation of 
image or of what the imagination is doing. But then, of course, there's the third possibility, which is what all these teachings are um, emphasizing and drawing out and exploring and expanding, is uh, an image that has become imaginal in, in the sense uh, that we have outlined and, and in the sense that we mean it. Or that we have entered as an imaginal image. And when that's the case, uh, we are not... Um, uh, naturally, we don't sense it as either real or not real. There's the imaginal middle way as part of the imaginal constellation when it's imaginal. It's theatre. This kind of middle way that we talked about. So, because of that, we're less lost in it, less believing it flatly, less identifying, less rarefying. So all this is, is, is should, be, should be obvious, but the, the point I want to make in, in this context is that um, both the second and the third of those options, the sort of mindfulness of image or mindfulness of what imagination is doing and what the mind is doing in regard to uh, its tendency to believe an image, that option, the second option, um, is, is freeing to a certain extent, but just as freeing is allowing something to become more imaginal, to enter. So the mindfulness kind of keeps it at bay. I see that image is there, but it's just kind of over there, and I see the tendency for, for me to get sucked into it, but I'm kind of keeping it at arm's length a little bit, mindfully, so it's not I'm not getting so sucked into it. The third option of actually entering more fully into the imaginal, letting it become more imaginal, um, is just as freeing with respect to um, whatever image is there. The difference, though, of course, is that... Um, in, in, in entering more fully the imaginal and allowing something to become more image, um, the image is empowered. Whereas the um, being mindful of what's in the imagination and the tendencies around it disempowers it. So there's also a kind of um, dynamic quality, based on everything we say, the soul-making dynamic quality that's possible in the, in the last option, still involves mindfulness. It's a mindfulness, mindful entering in and all that receptivity and sensitivity. The second option of just a kind of mindful observation and, if you like, uh, resisting of, of the uh, what's happening in the imagination, the image that's happening in the imagination, is a bit more static. So you don't really get uh, what's helpful uh, in the image. What was the the the, the gift that was that the image was pregnant with a gift, and we don't really get that until we enter into the imaginal, until we allow it to become fully imaginal. That's maybe a better way of saying it. So it's calling us. If we enter into a wrong relationship with it. Um, it will it will bring more papancha, more dukkha, etc. But it's also pregnant with a treasure, with a gift. And if we can enter, allow that uh, relationship to become fully imaginal, fully soul-making, uh, in the way that we've been outlining, then there's a whole other uh, dimension, range of gifts that we uh, that we receive there.
So sometimes the question is, is, is there an image here that needs liberating? I don't have so much a question as more just a subtle background attitude and um, style of approaching. Oftentimes, um, within the dukkha, there's um, there's an image, an imaginal image that's uh, that's so to speak buried there, and and the liberation of it, the realization of it, the entering into an exploration of it, the filling out of it, the blossoming of it, um, the liberating of the image that's buried there liberates us, or liberates that dukkha liberates us from that dukkha. It's not that this, again, it's not this sensing the soul means seeing the situation differently or not, you know, going away from the situation or turning away from it. And sometimes that, sometimes even that has, has uh, as the Buddha pointed out, this skillful avoidance. Um, but this sensing the soul that we're talking about now has more to do with um, uh, the situation is not different. It's the same situation. It's just sensed with soul. We're not running away. We're entering into and opening out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.